Bitcoin is the equivalent of the U.S. Constitution and those American ideals codified in a software system. Now, when I say that, people are like, oh my God, this is like crazy shit, right? Like, what, what is a bombastic statement? But let me explain. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients, like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5 and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black Wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. If you're like me, you like to wake up and get your daily dose of reading. Uh, For me, a lot of that has to do with commercial real estate because of the industry that we're in at Fort Capital. And the news is important, but if you're a busy real estate professional like me, you don't have time to skim through the dozens of dry and ad-filled media outlets each day. That's why I read CRE Daily, a free email newsletter that cuts through the clutter and delivers concise, witty commentary on the latest trends and transactions in commercial real estate. I discovered CRE Daily a few months ago, and it's an email I actually look forward to getting each morning. If you're a real estate professional, you owe it to yourself to try it out and stay on top of what's happening in the industry in only five minutes. To give their free daily newsletter a try, visit CREDaily.com. That's CREDaily.com. Pomp, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like the tables have turned. The tables have turned. And the the one thing we can start with is you have an American flag in your background. I have an American flag in my background. This was just destined to happen. That that is true. I noticed that. I like somebody who appreciates the flag and (laughs) understands that maybe we live in a pretty good country. Well, speaking of the flag and living in a great country, I kind of wanted to kick off here. You served the army from, I believe, 2006 to 2012, which is in my book about as admirable of a thing as you can do. 
let's just start with why you decided to go into the army. Did you have to go in? Was it to pay for college? Was it a want? How did that kind of get started? Yeah, I'm still asking myself that question to, to a degree. I was 17 when I signed up and I signed up in the National Guard for one of these programs that basically would let me go to school. I was going to play football in college. And then afterwards, I would be active duty and, and, and kind of the full thing. And at 17, I think part of it, you'd be lying if it wasn't like shooting guns, running around, you know, jumping out of airplanes. Like there's just like this rebellious kind of excitement and adventure and, and all of that that definitely spoke to me. Two was, you know, I was in middle school when September 11th happened. And I remember them kind of pulling us all out of school. And that really being kind of a moment where I was like, you mean people came here and tried to kill us? Right. And, and, and for whatever reason, saying like, hey, if we're going to go to war, like, you know, maybe I should be one of the people that goes. And then I think the third thing is there was a little bit of like a test. Like, could I do it? Right. And, and you would see people talk about basic training or, the, or other types of schools or, or the leadership uh, components. It's just like, well, that shit sounds hard. Right. Like, can, can I make it? Can I kind of survive? And so I remember I had asked my parents to sign. That was kind of a weird conversation because they could have said no. Thankfully, they didn't. I went to basic training and then I actually went to school, right? Because I was in the National Guard. So I went to school for two years and I was basically playing football, doing coursework. And then once a, one week in a month was going to kind of National Guard duty. So it's kind of a different college experience from that standpoint. And then when I was a junior, I got pulled out of school. The semester had just started and they basically reached out and they said, hey, we're going to get deployed and you're one of the guys that's going. Mm. And I was like, do I have to? <laughs> 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 and they're like, yeah. I was like, okay. And so I uh, withdrew from school, drove back to my parents' house and basically was like, I got one week and then they said I got to go to Iraq. And so that was kind of a jarring experience. But in hindsight, I learned a lot and, and ended up being pretty good. What did you learn that like still sticks with you today and things that you can only learn from serving in the army? Yeah. So I think that when I went was really important. I was 20. I had my 21st birthday in the desert and I was just around a lot of older guys who were like living real life, not kind of, you know, coddled on a college campus and thinking that like this lasts forever. And so at 20, I had just left in an environment where I was worried about like the football game on the weekend or the party on Saturday night. And these guys were like, dude, I got a wife, kid and a mortgage. And like, I'm here with you more. <laughs> right. And, and so like th there was a little bit of, hey, like real life is coming. And so at that point, that was a, a really important lesson. The second thing was I had uh, a number of different experiences, but one in particular pretty early on where someone unfortunately was killed. And in that moment, I think that it sunk in that like we all die. And so like almost the like facing of mortality really changed my perspective. And so I think that I'm a much happier person. I think I'm a much more optimistic person and like I live in the moment much more because I kind of realized that like this doesn't go on forever. And so that was like a weird kind of divergence because I think some people, obviously there, there's immense mental problems and stress and things that can come out of those situations or you can kind of look at it as like, damn, I'm pretty fortunate and I should go enjoy life. And then I think the third thing is just not necessarily from Iraq, but overall my military experience was like the leadership stuff. I was fortunate to get to go to a number of the leadership schools uh, as an enlisted soldier. And when you're there, you realize that like some of it's really not that complex or, or things that maybe are counterintuitive. A lot of it is just like, do what you say you're going to do. Be willing to do anything you ask anyone else to do. 
and like always be willing to sacrifice yourself while also leading from the front. And if you can just like do some basic stuff, very quickly you realize that like leadership matters and it's a learned skill. And so I've tried to just, you know, embody that and, and kind of carry it forward and other things that I've done afterwards. I love it. Now that you've been out for eight or I guess almost 10 years, is there, is it still like a, a part of your life? Do you still keep in touch with people? How, how does it kind of stay with you? Yeah, there's a couple of people that I, I stay in touch with. You know, I, I, I had a weird experience. Like I was only in for six years. I say only, some people think that's a long time, but like there's a lot of guys who right now they're finishing up 20. So, you know, I'm 34 years old. And if you join at 17, well, 37, you'd be retiring. Right. And so like, there are some guys who joined when I joined, like they're coming up now, they're starting to think about like, what is my career after, you know, my military service? What does that look like? And some of these guys have gone on and they've been fortunate enough to serve in special operations groups or some, you know, pretty elite level units. Some of them are frankly, you know, E5 sergeants who kind of just did what they wanted to do, were happy, they had a day job, and now they're trying to figure out what to do next. And so I, th I think that that's a, a really interesting dynamic because I kind of went and had a whole nother career uh, in the same time that they've been uh, still in the military. And so uh, I spent some time, you know, with those types of folks trying to figure out what they could do next. Cool. You get done and then you come back and I think the story, it doesn't quite start at Facebook, but you, you kind of get involved at Facebook. So let's kind of pick up there for a second. Like what happened at Facebook that I think as I kind of read more about you kind of was a, another defining moment in your career and kind of launched you into a, what I think is kind of taking place today. Yeah. So I, I came back, I finished school, you know, frankly, my father gets all the credit for that. I, I was like full on, Hey, I can just go be a contractor, get paid 200 K a year for doing what I just did for way less money. And like, that'd be a great life at, you know, 21 years old. And he was like, get your ass back in school. So I, so I did that. I, I started two software companies, you know, frankly, made every mistake in the book, kind of got out by the skin of our teeth and, and found some success, but, but knew that, it, look, I don't know how to build a large company. And so Facebook was really the decision of, I could go get an MBA and like pay to get an education, or I could go to a place like Facebook, they'll pay me and I'll probably learn more. And so that's why I, I at the time decided to go. I could have never imagined how much I would have learned. And at the time, Facebook in 2014, stock price like 50 bucks, there's like 3,500 people or so at the company. And I've told a story before, but like there was some meeting that we would have on a weekly basis and you would like go to this meeting and you'd look around the room and you're like, nobody outside of this room really knows most of these people's names, but this is like a special group and it's going to be cool to see like what these people go do in their careers. And many of those people went on to be, you know, founders of multi-billion dollar companies, executives at companies that people could name off the top of their head. And so when you're around that level of talent, execution, and success, you just pick things up through osmosis. And I think probably the two biggest lessons from Facebook, one was like how important operational excellence was. There was this one framework that they would always use. They would, Facebook's got a very heavy testing culture. And so they, they, for better or worse, people know that they do a lot of A-B testing and things like that. And one of the things that they would constantly hammer into you is like when you run a test, you have to do two things. First, you have to design it well. What are we testing? What are the metrics that we're going to use to know that it worked? What are the metrics that we're going to use to know that it didn't work? Kind of really lay it out. But the second thing you have to do is you have to execute the test perfectly. Because if you get to the other side of the test and it didn't work, then you're left wondering, did we not execute it correctly or does the test actually not work? And so as long as you always control for perfect execution, 
it quickly will give you signal on, hey, is this a good test or a bad test? So I think that was one. And then the second thing is just speed, man. Like, I would never bet against that team because they just are able to operate at a tempo that is very hard to replicate in other companies. And it's, you know, you hear stories today of some of the great Silicon Valley companies where they'd come up with an idea and it'd be, you know, live on their product by the end of the day. And still, even that Facebook had thousands of employees, like that was still very much the culture of like, let's just build it, go. And there's downsides to it, but but definitely I think that that speed was something I'd never seen before. And, and so that was a pretty cool lesson to take for, uh, for the rest of my career. Do you think that that's actually still happening to, today at these big tech companies or do they become bloated at some point and things, you know, kind of stop? I mean, you're there at 3,500 people. You think that's still the case at Meta? So I was there 3,500. When I left about two years later, they were over 12,000. Mm. So like they were growing. <laughs> there was an internal metric that you could go like on the internal dashboard and see how, what percentage of employees had you been at the company longer than? And so when you start on day one, it's not even 1%. But by the time I left, I had been there longer than like 95% of the company. That's cool. <laughs> and that was just in a two-year time frame, right? So yeah. like that gives you a sense of, of kind of how quickly things change. My guess is that you obviously lose speed as you get bigger and bigger. You know, now they have tens of thousands of employees. I don't think every company is the same. So some probably are better at it than others. And then also, I think that probably the teams that tend to do it the best or preserve that operational tempo are teams that still operate as if the individual product teams are like startups in themselves. So Amazon's famous for the like, you know, don't do meetings with more than eight or 10 people or whatever. And so if you think about it from that perspective, really, I think one of the telling signs is like, hey, how many people are working on X product? And if somebody's like, oh, we have, you know, 2,000 people working on it. Okay, that tells you something about a business that maybe if there's only 10 people working on it, it's a little bit different in, in terms of how they're approaching it. I would say that what's gone on with Elon buying Twitter is maybe a little bit of social proof in the pudding that you don't need all these huge teams to run these big apps. Maybe Twitter's different, but any thoughts there? I mean, it, it, so far, yeah, that's what it looks like. You know, it, it's hard for us to judge from the outside just because like we don't really know all, all of the details. But it does appear that one, there, there was bloat, right? And, and kind of bureaucracy follows that bloat. But, but also I, I looked at one point, maybe like after the first kind of round of layoffs, and a lot of the people who were being laid off weren't actually on the technical side. And so what's interesting is that these are technology products. And what has happened over the last maybe five years or so is we've wrapped a bunch of other types of teams, responsibilities, jobs, et cetera, around the technology. And I always used to joke that like Facebook didn't have a customer service number. Like, you know, if something goes wrong, like there's no number that you call and get stuck in the phone tree. There's just <laughs> use the product. Yeah. And so you can imagine a world where like, I don't know this to be 100% true, but I bet you that content moderation is one of the bigger teams at Facebook now. And so when you think about that, it's like, it's a necessary thing that they have to do what the rules are, people will debate, how they're enforced, people will debate. But like, you have to have some sort of content moderation team to keep terrorism, violence, you know, that type of stuff off. But as you get to, you know, three plus billion people, like you can't have two people doing it, right? <laughs> so like maybe 200, 2000, like what's the right number? I don't know. But I think that just happens with success. And so, you know, you and I kind of sit there and we're like, all right, well, if you fire half the staff, could you still operate? Yes. What I think we got to wonder is like, what are the positive and negative impacts of that, you know, 12 months from now? 
I think Elon has the same mentality of like, we're going to find out. Yeah. That's like the big debate right now. I mean, with the Apple store. I I think this is going to be one of the more interesting wars to play out. I mean, the richest guy in the world and the richest company in the world are about to have it out. And I, I, I truly, I don't know what's going to happen. I think this is going to be another big defining moment on the internet because I apparently filed, fired all of his moderation team, which again, I guess there was a product manager last night on Apple that tweeted that basically that alone was merit for taking them out of the app store. I don't know what's going to happen. I think I think we're the 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 thing. The other thing I would say is they always we talk about things now like there's this other being other than the government, like they are going to take it all down or they're controlling Apple. But then you're like, okay, who's they? And everybody's like, we we don't fully know. Do you think there is a they, or is that just what we like to say? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not of the belief that like. There's a board of directors that get together for the world. <laughs> like, you know, here is the decree off of the mountaintop. I know some people think that that is true. Maybe if somebody has evidence, I'll change my mind on it. But, but I don't think that's the current situation. But I do think that there is almost more like a, a cultural thing where people kind of, people laugh, I say this, but it's almost like a vibe, right? Like it, the vibe right now is to be anti-Elon or it's to be anti-X or Y or whatever. And it's hard to fight that, right? Because like in some way, it's like the the group dynamics, the social cohesion, like all the things that we know from psychology or sociology or whatever, like they're playing out on the internet. So it goes faster, bigger, and can be, you know, kind of more powerful. At the same time, there's like an information war, but also there's the like action war. And those two things go on at the same time. And so you can see like Apple obviously is taking a perspective of like we're privacy first. But at the same time, there's critics who would argue like Apple is simply nuking all these other advertising platforms so that then they can build a huge advertising business. And like when you look into it, it's like, actually, there's probably like a hint of truth in all of it. And so like we, you know, kind of idiots on the internet with just our little Twitter accounts, (laughs) we simply are going to get told what to believe. And even if we go looking for the information ourselves, it's probably not as obvious. And so I've kind of just chalked it up to like, I'm an observer who is interested in the outcome, but I have no control over the outcome. So like, don't spend too much time trying to fool yourself. Yeah, I had Tucker Max. I don't know if you know Tucker. He was on the podcast. But anyway, and you've kind of been in this spot, like you've had some of the biggest names around the globe on your podcast. You've probably had many others that you know that haven't been on the podcast. And he kind of said something similar. He's just like, look, I've met all the people that would know if there was this secret board and nobody yet has come to me and whispered in my ear like hey dude there's this whole other thing like pay attention there i'm assuming you haven't gotten that whisper either no if one of my friends knows who the board is and they didn't invite me i'm pissed (laughs) if anybody (laughs) listening to this knows where the board is comment in the comment section we want to know no but 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 i do think that like as much as we joke around about like one single board i 100 agree with there's a professor at um, Cornell, his name's Dave Collum. I've had him on the show a couple of times. And he always talks about like the word conspiracy, right? Like to conspire means to like work together to do something. And he's like, that is what everyone is doing. Everyone is conspiring, whether you're for something or against something, whether you're intentional or unintentional, like everyone is conspiring 
And so, like, his point is less about, like, this is some, you know, like, anarchist view of the world and, like, they're out to get us. And he's like, no, this is just, like, better understanding, like, what are people trying to accomplish? What are the paths that they will pursue to, to accomplish those things? And then who are they doing it with? And I think that we saw, you know, in some of the communications, like, when we start to hear that the government is directly communicating with social media platforms about any topic, whether it's things around the pandemic or other types of topics that people really care about in any moment, you begin to say to yourself like, oh, there's a lot here that we don't understand. And if you are somebody who's quick to jump to conclusions or kind of make assumptions, you're going to have a hard time out there. And so I think the more that you can just kind of say to yourself like, okay, that's an interesting data point. Let me wait to get more before I kind of form a full opinion. Over the years, I think it's just served me better and better. And so I try really hard not to jump to conclusions, but like, you know, see a good meme or two and next thing you know, you're like, yep, (laughs) that's me. I was listening to Andrew Wilkinson the other day on the My First Million podcast and he said something like they asked him about, I think it was FTX actually. And they said, what do you think? And he goes, I don't know. I'm not going to make an opinion. I've generally found that waiting like six months and kind of starting to read the articles six months after it happened, you kind of can form a better opinion than the articles, you know, the first couple of weeks after. And I hadn't really heard it framed that way. I thought it was was good. I was I was going to also say what, uh, on what we were talking about. And one, you had Andrew Tate on who I would say probably he, he talks of things like there's this other thing. But then when you think of something like, I don't know, I didn't think we we're going to go here on this episode, but when you think of like Epstein Island, which if you're on Twitter is is trending on Twitter like three or four days a week. And you're like, okay, they're never going to release the list of people that went there. Who is telling the people don't release the damn list? Is this a just an organized deal or is it a person like how does that happen? I don't know. Like, like I think that is similar situations like SBF situation obviously the the island and you kind of go down the line, it feels like, again, there's like this assumption that the internet makes almost immediately when some of these things happen. And the internet actually has like pretty good intuition. And so it's like, oh, this is obviously a situation where like X person isn't going to get in trouble or Y person is definitely going to get in trouble even though maybe they shouldn't or whatever in between. And I don't know why that is. Like, is it just pattern recognition that the internet is so good at like seeing this over and over again now and like we've become kind of honed in on the situation? Maybe. Is it that like actually the people who are, you know, overlords or whatever, they're on the internet and so they seed the ideas? (laughs) Who knows? But, But it does feel like the internet has given us so much in terms of access to information that sometimes it works against us. And you and I were like, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter. We see a bunch of people yelling and screaming about something. And like, literally, it's like the world is ending. And this is the only thing to talk about. And then I always say, like, just go to like Instagram. No one's talking about it. You know, go (laughs) go to like any other platform. Like literally no one's talking about that thing. And so we just have to remember, like, we definitely live in a bubble. It's a fun bubble, but like it is a bubble. Dude, a thousand percent. I can't tell you how many times I've been at dinner with like friends that aren't on Twitter. And I'm like, well, you know, this thing going on in the world. And they're like, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, "Okay, great. Are you jealous of those people? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I am. To be honest with you, there's days I'm like, I didn't need to really know 90 percent of the stuff I learned on Twitter the last three years. And my life probably wouldn't have changed much. But 
the 10% that you do know, I have learned things on Twitter that I do feel like is is super valuable. So I don't know. I still think it's valuable. I am a net positive Twitter believer, but definitely there's plenty of nonsense on there as well. Okay, well then we'll we'll kind of push a little bit. So you have been a beneficiary of the internet, I would say. You have 1.6, as of today, 1.6 million followers on Twitter alone. I'm sure there's other social platforms. So let's just kind of talk about, one, how did you build the following? And then we're going to talk about what does having a large following, like what types of accountability do you feel like you have? Like, how has it changed your life? I'm sure there's a lot of positives and I'm sure there's also a lot of pressure, but let's just start with like why the internet, why you decided to build this following and kind of media presence that's had a lot of positive in your life? Yeah, it's definitely incredibly positive on a net basis. I I think that's most important. So in 2015, the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, I was at Facebook and I'd previously run a growth team focused on Facebook pages, which is like their business product. You have to have a page to be an advertiser. And I got asked to spend about three months working directly with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg to help them grow their own online audience, which sounds weird, right? For like, why do they care? But if you think about it at the time, there's maybe almost a billion and a half, two billion people on Facebook. And I think Zuck had like 9 million followers on Facebook. So like just this wide discrepancy. And so there was conversations like, should we make Zuck friends with everyone when they join Facebook? You know, <laughs> a la uh, MySpace Tom. <laughs> okay, that probably doesn't make sense. Should we like take over the front page of the site one day and be like, if you want to follow Mark, like hit here. <laughs> okay, probably shouldn't do that. And so like, there was all these conversations. What we ended up doing was just like, can we take a data-driven approach to organically growing his following? And I think what was interesting to me was two things. One, they were very early to the like, go direct you know, be able to speak directly to people and not have to go through third parties. Um, so, so that was interesting. And then two was they ended up deciding, do not change the product. Don't give themselves an advantage over others in the product, which I thought was as well. And so I saw them do it. I was able to help also when I was doing the page stuff, a number of brands build pretty large audiences also. And I saw the benefits to them. 2017 comes around and I was like, I have like 1,500 or 2,000 followers on Twitter. Like I have no audience. I've helped all these other people do this and I've seen how beneficial it is. Like, maybe I should do it for myself. And so I called a couple of them. They gave me some tips or whatever. And and I very intentionally was like, 2017, I'm going to grow a Twitter audience. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that I would do. But by the end of 2017, I had about 100,000 followers. So it was like pretty quick growth. But 100,000 followers that like were pretty scattered. There were some people who were interested in like business investing stuff. There was just starting to be some people interested in like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and that. Uh, There were some people who were interested in like technology and and, and science stuff or whatever. But I was just tweeting thoughts and and whatever came to mind. By the end of 2018, I had 200,000. And by the end of 2020, I think it was, I had 400,000. And now I have 1.6 million. So I was adding like 100,000, you know, give or take a year. And then when the bull run of 2021 happened, there was months where I was, I think the biggest month was like 180,000 followers in a single month. And so like, that is intoxicating. It, you, it's awesome. And then, you know, 2022 happens and like you pay for every single intoxicating moment on the way up, on the way down. And it's a weird thing where like you have to go through it, I think, to kind of understand the pros and cons. But once you experience it, you're like, eh, it's very valuable. 
But at the same time, like most people probably don't want this life. Like the big audience is not nearly as fun on like a net basis as maybe people would think because when everything's going well, whatever the industry would be, everyone's excited, but also you become the punching bag on the other side. And as in most things in life, optimism isn't nearly shared as much maybe as like the pessimism is. And so you just kind of realize like, actually maybe the best thing to do would be have like a decent sized following with the people you care about. And then like outside of that, like who cares? Like you don't want the mainstream audience, right? You don't want to be the the celebrity with 20 million followers because you just can't use the product. You, you just become a, you know, a one-way posting machine and, and it's not very valuable for you. Has it censored you more uh, like internally? Like the way you think about it, are there things you're just like, man, I could have shared this with a thousand followers, but I can't share it with 1.6. I significantly changed the type of content that I would talk about because what ended up happening, I think, is, is twofold. One, one of the best ways to grow an audience is to be very focused on one message. So if you ever see accounts that like on Thursday, they're tweeting about their business, on Friday, they're tweeting about a political thing, and on Saturday, they're tweeting about a football game, they usually don't have like super big audiences. And it's because it's kind of confusing. Like, what am I following this person for? I wanted the business stuff. I don't care about the politics or the sports or vice versa. And so like, just naturally, you learn that over time and, and you kind of just focus on one thing. Obviously, my thing was, was Bitcoin and, and that whole industry. And then the second thing is like, you can't be curious. And I think that's actually probably the, the part that people miss. I could never just be like, hey, does anybody know a good you know X product or something? Because then it's like mayhem. And so like, you know, maybe the most curious I could be is like, anybody got a good book recommendation or like a documentary <laughs> or something, right? But like, that's like the, the, the furthest out expansion that you can go on the curiosity spectrum. And so that's why I've pushed much more. And like, I spend more time now in private group chats where I can have like real conversations with people that I trust and I care about and I learn from. And it's like a high trust environment where everyone is willing to actually say what they mean. They're not simply tweeting something because it's like a virtue signal. And so just know what platforms do and, and focus on the ones that, you know, can give you whatever you're looking for in the moment. Yeah, I, I'm on a few in Signal and WhatsApp, and I would say the same thing. It's a, just a totally different. I mean, it's basically like being around the table with some buddies and you're able to really kind of get vulnerable. And that's where all the, the lessons are learned. The best ones are the ones where, where people would say things that they'd get canceled on Twitter for, but it's the thing they actually believe. And that's why the high trust environment is important because you can understand and then talk about it without you know worrying about the, the reaction from people who may just be kind of a passerby and not know what's actually being talked about. I mean, you when you see how those folks interact with me in the private chats and then you see what's happening, like how they conduct themselves on Twitter, on one end, I totally empathize with why they are the way they are on Twitter, but you actually get to watch kind of two worlds play out at once is like the real so-and-so and the Twitter so-and-so. And, you know, I think, I don't know if Elon Musk is necessarily even trying to solve that. I don't think that's a free speech issue. It's just like, how much risk do you, how much is there to gain at some point? Like, when, when are you not gaining anymore by being super vulnerable on the internet? And I don't know what the tipping point is, but most big account followings would tell you exactly kind of what you just said. And I don't have near as many as you do, but I'm a whole lot different at 60 something thousand than I was at 600. That's for damn sure. It, it, it's this thing where, like, it's risk reward. It's just like investing, right? The more risk you take, the more reward you get. So, like, 
how did I gain so many followers in 2021? Well, like I said exactly what I believed, Uh right? Like I was honest. (laughs) And, And so like, there's frankly just not a lot of people who are willing to be truly honest. If I thought that like the Federal Reserve was screwing up, I said it. And I said it like 10 times in 10 different tweets in the same day. And so like, what you learn, and, and some of it's like maturity, frankly, right? Some of it's experience. And then some of it's just like being intentional about like what life you want. You start to learn just like, what what's the point, right? Like, do, do I really need to tell a million people what I actually believe about, you know, something that I can't control? Eh, maybe. But like the responses aren't that helpful, right? I probably could just text it to three or four friends that I trust and learn from and they'll give me their feedback and like, okay, that's good enough. So I don't know. I think we're all kind of learning this as we go because all of our accounts are getting bigger at the same time that, you know, we're, we're kind of figuring out what the hell Twitter even is. It's one of the things I admired the most that you did this past year. I actually watched it. I remember where I was, I was in Nashville driving somewhere in the back seat, And I think you had just posted kind of why you were taking down the better business show. And you gave this really cool, what I thought was a good chat about Basically, you had become the teacher and not the student anymore, and you're a lifelong student and you were going to go back. Was there a moment or a series of things, or maybe we just ended up talking about it, that kind of led you to go, I'm going to change course and I'm going to become the student again, not the teacher? Yeah, I mean, it's so weird, right? Because we started in July of 21, yeah, July of 2021 we started what is essentially a financial news show on YouTube. And so you can think of just like a Bloomberg or a CABC, the technology barrier has dropped so significantly that if you're willing to buy the video equipment and you know how to kind of operate correctly, you can now do the exact same thing they do, but you can do it on the internet. And so we've seen this in other industries be quite popular and successful. Probably Pat McAfee in the sports world is is like the, the best example of it, where he now for a lot of people has replaced like a sports center, right? Or, or an ESPN. And so that was the general idea of like, hey, if we really want to kind of get the word out about the things that we think are important, like, let's just go build that. And after about six months, I was already at the point where I was like, all right, this is weird. And this is like, not what I really signed up for. Because what I started to realize was like, it was all about the incentives on the internet being the more bombastic, the crazier, the, the more ridiculous headline, whatever, drives more clicks and clicks end up fueling advertising revenue and all this stuff. And so I told myself like, look, I'm going to do this for 12 months. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm just kind of in like this funk. Let's see, you know, kind of what happens. And pretty much by like month nine, I was like, all right, I'm going to stick this out through the 12 month mark. But like, I want to get back to learning. And the biggest thing is like, if you, if you really think about kind of the news, you're constantly asked to have an opinion. You can't say, well, I'm going to wait six months and I'll read the articles then, right? And then I'll have my opinion. Like, that's not like that's not okay. People are here to hear your opinion today. And so what do you do? You end up putting your foot in your mouth, right? Because you say things that like, oh, this is what I believe today. And then literally at lunch, someone tells you something. You're like, well, now I don't believe that anymore. I believe this other thing. But people online are like, look at this idiot. <laughs> so I, I think it just comes down to like, it, again, is that the life you want? No. Okay. Then like go back to being the student. And if there's one thing in my career that I've done over and over again, which for some reason is very difficult for other people, I find it very natural. It's just like, I'm willing to just walk away, right? Like 
hey, I'm not having fun doing this. I'm going to go do something else. And so, you know, it wasn't like I like had a job and I quit the job with no other plan or, or whatever. So, it, so it's a little unique. But like, why keep doing something if you're not enjoying it, right? And that was kind of my thought process and, and why I did it. Do you think there is a pathway in the next, I don't know, 10, 100 years to where the internet doesn't incentivize ridiculousness? I think that there's really only very minimal paths, but there's probably only like two that I could think of right now. One is if you can completely remove the advertising model, the problem is advertising is used so that you can give free content to people, right? People always forget like the content is free because there's advertising. If you don't want advertising, then pay for the product. And what we've seen time and time again, I've talked to a lot of people who have very large audiences across all the platforms. Mostly people do not pay for content. Maybe there's one person or one platform that they feel really, really strongly about and they pay for that one. But if every single person creating content on the internet charged $10 a month, <laughs> right, we'd all be broke. <laughs> like we literally could, we don't have enough money to pay for all the content. And so that's why advertising obviously has taken off, but it does incentivize like the biggest audience. Now, I think that having people pay for content is one interesting thing. The second thing is if you get people in a position where they don't need to have revenue in order to support the creation of it. So you can see this as one, there's the potential for these like solo kind of content creators who don't have big teams and, and a lot of assets and things like that, that they need to pay for. They may be able to get away with it because it's just like, hey, it's just them. And so the revenue isn't nearly as sensitive. The other thing is really, really rich people who don't need money, right? <laughs> and they can kind of just fund it out of their pocket. And we see there's some nonprofits that do stuff like this. Obviously, they're, they're some of the richest people in the world own media properties as well. But even they aren't, you know, hey, I'll pay 250 million bucks a year for operations, right? They run a profitable business. And so I think it's hard to just change what is in motion, right? Like things in motion stay in motion and we'll see. There, there's possible paths, but I don't... I don't assign a high probability of us going down those paths. Getting back to just kind of online audience, you your thing was what has become one of the biggest things in the world is the crypto industry. And so going back to how did crypto become the thing? Was there somebody at a dinner one night that was like, hey, dude, you got to start thinking about this. And like, I'm assuming you were in this way before everybody else was. How did like that, that start? Yeah. So when I was at Facebook, somebody told me about Bitcoin. They were talking about it, not even necessarily telling me, but just talking about it. And I turned to an engineer and I was like, hey, what is that? And they're like, it's dumb. That was it. I didn't Google it. I didn't you know, do anything. And fast forward to like end of 2016, a young kid actually, he was a freshman at NC State, was like, hey, did you know that you can like buy computers, plug them in and get paid? So not even the like Bitcoin pitch, the crypto pitch, it was like literally a data center on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I understood the data center business. And, and so it was like, that sounds awesome. Let's try it. And because I had made an investment personally to do it, I was paying attention to it. So I started thinking more about it. As it kind of dominated more and more of my thoughts, naturally it leaked out into, I tweeted about it. And then people were reacting. They were sending me things to read. They were DMing me. And it was like, oh, okay, there's something here. And so I just spent more and more time on it. And pretty much by the end of 2017, I was just like, I think this is going to be huge. I want to go spend majority of my time on it. But I thought I had missed it. And that's like a key piece to it. it was like at the end of 2016, you know, 
Bitcoin was already, I don't know, thousand, fifteen hundred bucks or whatever. So like when you're like, it started at zero and now it's at a thousand, <laughs> you, you think that you missed it. And as I learned more, I don't think I really, really understood kind of what it even was until the end of 2018. So it like took like a good two years of me kind of, you know, going around in the dark, if you will, feeling around trying to understand it. And then I just had deep conviction. And I had conviction not only intellectually, but also just like I was willing to make a big bet personally. And so when I did that, again, it goes back to just like, I'm just like pretty honest online. And like what you see is what you get. I was like, hey, I made this big bet. Like, let's see what happens. And, you know, for better or worse, Bitcoin exploded from $3,000 in December of 2018 to $69,000, you know, three years later in November of 21, which, you know, there was a lot of volatility in there. There was all kinds of other things that happened. But that three-year period or, you know, really kind of two-year period, if you will, was insane. And one of these things that like, you look back and you're like, I can't even believe that that actually happened. You know, now here we are back down to $15,000 and all the people who previously were saying that it was going to zero or back again saying it's going to zero. <laughs> they they don't go away forever. You you have to know that. When Bitcoin crashes from 200K to 100K, they're going to be saying it's going to zero. <laughs> okay, well, you said it. I didn't know what it really was until 2018. What is it? Like, what is, you, you said, what is it? I, I have some ideas, but I can't fully understand what it truly is other than when I go to the store of value topic, I'm like, that seems the most sense to me and the fact that it can be held offline and, and, and remain anonymous and all of those things. But the store of value kind of gets defeated most of the time because either A, it's volatile or B, or as a medium of exchange, the other argument is like, if I think it's going up, why would I ever pay someone in Bitcoin? So from your perspective, I'm just a dumb real estate guy from Texas. What is Bitcoin? Yeah, don't worry. I'm dumb too. So that, that's two of us. <laughs> the, more, the more the following we get online, the dumber we become to everybody else. That, isn't that kind of the, the way it works? Elon Musk, is, Elon Musk is apparently like the dumbest person in the world now. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. There's an inverse correlation. All right. So the promise of Bitcoin from the white paper is, you know, electronic peer-to-peer -peer cash. So just think money on the internet, not backed by a central bank. So, so kind of no one controls it, if you will. We can go down that path and kind of talk about like, hey, here's what it's supposed to be. I think the easier way to kind of understand it is just like the way that I view Bitcoin is that nobody will argue the world is going to get less automated. Like the world is going to be more automated in the future and most people agree with that. And so when you look at every single thing in your life, software has slowly but surely eaten into it, right? Software eating the world. To me, Bitcoin is simply an automated central bank. So it is a monetary institution that happens to be codified via software code that has stated, this is what our monetary policy is going to be. Regardless of what happens in the world, we are not going to change. And we have a limited supply. So finite limited supply with a programmatic monetary policy. And the reason why that becomes interesting to me is that it's pretty much 180 degrees opposite of every other currency in the world. Every other currency says we have humans that are going to make variable decisions based on what's happening in the world and there's an unlimited supply. 
And so if you know, you know, anything about tech investing, basically you have to do something different than everyone else and you have to be right. So like Bitcoin, just from a structural standpoint, checks the box of it is definitely doing something different than everybody else. Where the debate comes in is, is it right? And so when I started to look at it, the thing that I kept saying to myself was just like, man, the fact that it doesn't change is going to be so important in a world that appears to be accelerating change. And I think 2020 and 2021 was like a perfect example. We had like the shortest recession in history in March and April. Then we had trillions of dollars printed, fiscal policy. It was like money falling out of the sky. We're bailing out industries. We're like doing all these different things. And at the same time, Bitcoin is going through that exact same world. It's just doing exactly what it was programmed to do. And so I realized, I was like, oh, wait a second. Monetary policies in the fiat world are reactionary. They react to what's happening. And that is really put on a pedestal as a positive. Bitcoin says, no, we're not going to react to the world. We simply are going to continue to do what we say we're going to do. And so remain kind of disciplined or programmatic. Now, when you look at it from managing an economy standpoint, reacting to what's happening is viewed as a positive. But what it does is it makes it very hard on the individual level to plan your life. If you were at the beginning of 2020 thinking that you know inflation was going to be 2% and you were making investment or financial decisions on that, pretty much by like mid-21, you were like, oh shit, I miscalculated, right? It's like, that's <laughs> only 18 months. And then you're like, okay, interest rates are zero. So you make some other financial decisions. And then like pretty much a year later, you're like, oh shit, nope, interest rates are flying up, right? Like things got more expensive. And so it's very hard for you to plan long-term if the cost of capital keeps changing, if the monetary policy changes, and, and also fiscal, but, but mainly monetary. Bitcoin just solves all that. and just says like, no, we're just going to do what we say we're going to do. Now, what that leads to is the world trying to figure out, well, what the hell is this thing worth, right? And, and to your comment about like the volatility, the volatility of Bitcoin is non-existent right? Bitcoin is not volatile. It's the exchange price that's volatile. And so the same thing is like the dollar isn't necessarily volatile, right? One dollar is one dollar. It's what can the one dollar buy you that is volatile, the exchange price. Now, they're both volatile to a degree. Bitcoin's obviously more volatile from a percentage standpoint. But, you know, over the last two years, the dollar's lost 20% of its purchasing power. Bitcoin's up, right? So, so it's like, you know, pick your favorite timeline, twist the data however you want. It's like they're both moving, and you can look at it like that. And then the last thing I would say is like, to your point about store of value, in my opinion, if Bitcoin becomes the global store of value, similar to like how I would look at like a real estate type, you know, asset class across the world, that would be a win. If it just became a store of value, I think while some of the most hardcore Bitcoiners would not be happy, they would feel like it failed. I think for most people, that would be a win. If it then can also become a medium of exchange, and even maybe a unit of account, that's like all icing on the, on the cake to me. But just creating a digital store of value that you control, that you can plan your life around, I think would have immense positive impact on, you know, billions of people around the world. But we still got a lot of work to do, right? I mean, there's like 100 to 150 million people, they estimate, have Bitcoin. To get to billions, I mean, you're literally talking about 10x or more, you know, increase in the user base. And so I think where you get a lot of the, the folks in the Bitcoin community, although they don't like to admit it, if you have a fixed supply asset 
and you think that 10x more people are going to come in and try to get it, the price will go up. And so there's this element of like supply, demand, economics take over and people are capitalists slash greedy. And so they naturally, they want to hold an asset before everyone else that'll go up in price, right? So is there anything about the, the, the promise of Bitcoin that's actually happening like today? Or is it still like accumulate what you can because the promise is coming and you'll be glad that you have it all once the promise came? Or are there people today that would say like, I'm living out my Bitcoin dream right now? Yeah, it, this is a really good question. I, I, I recently read a book, Being Mortal, by a, a tool, Gawandi. And in it, he talks about this idea of like, happiness is expectations minus reality. And so like, I think to answer the question of like, I'm living out my Bitcoin dream, like what, what is the dream, right? Did you expect it to be a unit of account by now? Well, like, no, you're not happy. If you expected it just to serve as a personal store of value, then you're actually pretty happy, right? If you go back and you look, even though Bitcoin went all the way up to $69,000, it's now down like 75%, still around, let's call it $16,000, give or take. That's up 100%. It was like $8,000 starting 2020. So like since the pandemic, you know, till now, it's basically doubled in price. There's a lot of people who are like, damn, that's better than my stock portfolio or my bonds or, you know, whatever else in, in value. The question is just like, do you have the stomach to ride volatility of, you know, whatever, 8,000 to 64,000, back down to 30, back up to 69, back down to 16. Like that's a lot of volatility in there. And so what it does is it actually incentivizes dollar cost averaging into what many people, including myself, believe is a great asset. And then just hold it for a long time, which if I was not talking about Bitcoin, you would be like, oh, that's like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, right? Like just yeah. like buy great assets, hold them forever. <laughs> Assuming in real estate, you guys do similar things. The question of what's a great asset though is where a lot of the debate lies. Okay, so on the on the topic of volatility, and again, I know I'm not asking you to to predict the future, but you hear about like crypto winters and things drop 70%, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so my question is, do winters end at some point? Like, is there a point, even if it's 50 years from now, where the volatility kind of stops and we kind of hit kind of the end of the rope and it's like, this is what a Bitcoin's worth? Or do we expect, vol like, why do we have these predictable winters and why does when does volatility stop? I think for people that don't believe in Bitcoin, a lot of it is it's so volatile. Is there a promise that it's not volatile one day or that's just yet to be determined? Yeah, so I think there's three points here. One is, I can't predict the future, but we can look to the past, right? And kind of what's happened. And, and usually what's occurred is there's been a pre-programmed halving. So just think of like how much Bitcoin's coming into the circulating supply on a daily basis. And when that happens, obviously that's a supply shock. That supply shock ends up leading to demand change or in price. And so naturally as price goes up, people are human. They run in, they want to buy the thing that now is going up that they should have bought before but eventually gets overheated. That's where all the froth is. And then that's unsustainable and it kind of crashes. And that's happened multiple times in the past. Now, what's interesting is every time that there's a crash, there seems to be a net gain of new users, even though people get kind of washed out and leave the industry. In 2020, I believe it was, or 2019, Stanley Druckenmiller came out and said that him and Paul Tudor Jones had bought Bitcoin. And one of the statistics that they became convinced was a positive sign for Bitcoin was that 85% of the people who held Bitcoin at 20,000, which was the top of the 2017 bull market, still held it 
when it was at 3,500 at the bottom of the bear market of 2018. And so they basically were just like, these people are insane. They just rode down, you know, 80%. <laughs> like, if you didn't sell by now, you're probably not going to sell. <laughs> and so they're traders, right? They're not necessarily Luddites or anything. They just went and they bought it and, and it went back up in price. And so I think that what you can see, which is very interesting, is on chain, which all that means is you can look at the transparent ledger of the blockchain and see what people are doing uh, kind of on an aggregate basis. Right now, even though Bitcoin's down 75%, 67% of all Bitcoin in circulation hasn't moved in a year, which would say even though Bitcoin's come down so much over that year period, people still aren't selling. So it's like a, it, it has a circulating supply, but that circulating supply is very illiquid. Almost 70% of it doesn't move regardless of price, which is an all-time high. And so when you look at that, you're like, okay, this is basically like a stock with very little free float. Like I'm, if you remember correctly, in Canada, I think it was when the first like marijuana stock went public. I forget exactly what they did, but they only floated like one or 2% of the stock and people were like clamoring for it. And so it exploded like thousands of percent up and then obviously crashed. Similar dynamic is like, if you don't have a lot of free float and there's demand changes, like there's going to be volatility. Now, again, I mentioned the dollar is volatile, usually to the downside over long periods of time or almost always, but we don't think of that. Because like, even though the dollar has lost 20% of its purchasing power over the last two years, according to the official inflation metrics, you and I just like, we have dollars, we go to the store, everything's priced in dollars. We don't think about exchange rates. We just pay whatever and we go. With Bitcoin, people look at it like a stock price where there's a US dollar value that's super volatile. If instead the world was all priced in Bitcoin, which I'm not necessarily convinced will happen or won't happen, I, I think that's something that, that is up for debate, you wouldn't think of Bitcoin as volatile. You would just use it the same way they use the dollar. And so like that's a really hard thing to psychologically kind of shake is the US dollar exchange price, right? Because if somebody says like, what's a Bitcoin worth? What do you do? You quote the US dollar price. But, but I think that is probably one of the things that people deep in the Bitcoin community have done best is they basically denominate their wealth in Bitcoin. The same way somebody would say like, oh, I have, you know, I don't know, I have 20 doors, right, in the real estate world. They'd be, oh, I have five Bitcoin. And they don't necessarily think of it as the US dollar terms. Some of that may be because when the price crashes, they feel like they don't have as much money. <laughs> but but, but by, by denominating it in Bitcoin, you now are basically just what, what is called stacking sats, right? How do you just acquire more and more Bitcoin through dollar cost averaging so that you can go from, okay, I have five Bitcoin to now I have five and a half to now I have six and, and kind of keep measuring your wealth that way and almost allow the US dollar exchange price to just do whatever it's going to do without really making decisions based on that. If, if everything was priced in Bitcoin around the world, I'm just using that as like a, a lead, but I would assume that that means that governments around the world are for this stuff. I think the thing I get also confused about, and we can talk about FTX. I mean, everybody kind of knows what's going on, the, and and this has brought it further to the forefront. But I guess my point is, and again, help me think about this. We just kind of assume, I guess, that governments are like, hey, this is all cool. Like, y'all are going to go build this whole world outside of us. Or the answer is the government's like, oh, hey, we're going to get involved. And then that's like everything that was against what Bitcoin was supposed to be about. So maybe the question is just like, how does Bitcoin continue to emerge in a world where I would make an 
an argument that governments are starting to go, maybe we don't like that happening. Yeah. So there's basically government embraces it, government fights it, or government is agnostic to it. Like those are the three, you know, potential paths in a general sense. Agnostic, we can put aside like they just don't do anything and whatever happens to Bitcoin happens. In terms of a world where governments are abrasive to Bitcoin, which we have seen in a number of countries, we've actually seen adoption go up, which is very interesting. So it's been banned in Nigeria, in Pakistan, a couple of other countries, and post-ban, adoption goes up. And there's kind of this element of like, you can ban it, but you can't actually shut it down. So you can make rules that say you shouldn't do this, but almost by doing that, you're like marketing it and saying like, we don't want you to use this. And so people say, why not? Oh, you can't stop me. And they go and they adopt it. I am of the belief that although they may say differently in public, I don't think that most Americans are willing to fight the U.S. government over an asset like this. And so if the U.S. government specifically became abrasive to it, I think most people would you know, similar to turning in their gold, they'd say, you know, here's the Bitcoin. Thank you. See you later. I want to go live a happy life and, you know, not have problems. But at the same time, there's a lot of places in the in the world where like people 100% are willing to stand up to their government in a way that is literally violent, is willing to defend their rights literally with their life or their fortune. And, and so, you know, you can see how that changes based on the geopolitical landscape in, in various countries or regions. In a world where the government is embracing Bitcoin. I find it very interesting to think of it through the perspective of like, Bitcoin was first adopted by individuals. So most technologies come top down, governments and militaries, then corporations, and then finally, you know, you get the PC on your, on your desktop. Instead, this was individuals first. Now we've just started to see companies like, like public corporations or private corporations and financial companies start to embrace it. And we're just, can see a light at the end of the tunnel of countries potentially being sympathetic and embracing it as well. And so when you come bottoms up, you have to remember that like, why are companies doing it? Well, companies are made up of people, both shareholders and employees. And so if it's good for individuals, then it's probably good for companies. And that's where you've seen like inside of these corporations, usually there's like a Bitcoiner who's like, you know, has absolutely gone insane and like put all of their money in Bitcoin. And then they're like, hey, I think that we should also do this at our company. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like they're the driving force internally. Same thing in government is like literally El Salvador is whether people agree, disagree with them, whatever, like they are the example at the moment. The president was like, I think Bitcoin's a good idea. We are going to embrace it. And so like it took a Bitcoiner in a position of influence to just go ahead and have the country adopt it. And so like my guess now is that governments will end up embracing this. They may do it cautiously. They may do it slowly, but likely they will embrace it. And where they will kind of benefit, one is like, it's an escape valve for them. Like, what is the off-ramp from the insane monetary fiscal policy stuff around the world and like the debasement of fiat currency? You know, they, they, they need an escape ramp also. So like, there's that argument. The second thing is like, if there's a ton of economic value that's being created and captured by this industry, like they want taxes. And so like, if there is a area where people are making money, of course, they're like, hey, we want a piece of that. And so what you see is, you know, whether it's states like Florida, Texas, competing over who can get Bitcoiners to move there, whether it's these countries, whatever, like there's the same reasons why you want companies to move to your 
geographic region that you're going to want these Bitcoin companies or the Bitcoiners themselves with assets to move there. And so I think it's kind of a, I don't want to say a foregone conclusion, but a high probability that actually they end up embracing this stuff over a long period of time. And it becomes more of a, a question of like, how do we operate with this in existence? Because as I think it was Patrick McHenry, politician said on the national floor, like we can't shut it down, so we shouldn't even try because of the decentralized nature. And so like you almost have to ask yourself, if we can't shut it down, then like what's the next best option? And embracing it and, and trying to benefit from it is uh, is probably the, the path that they'll choose. So if a, a politician, I'll give you kind of a loaded question, you can take it however you want, but if a politician was listening to this, and God knows like all the politicians in the country listen to this podcast, what would be a benefit to them embracing it besides just the fact that, well, if we can't get rid of it, we might as well just go along with it. Like, is there a pitch to governments of like, you should want this rather than want it because all your citizens want it and it'll help you get elected? Is there a reason that Bitcoin does good things for governments? Or is it just that it because the people are happy, ultimately that flows up to the government, if that makes sense? Well, I personally believe that the government serves the will of the people and the people are protected by the U.S. Constitution, Bill of Rights, etc. And Bitcoin is the equivalent of the U.S. Constitution and those American ideals codified in a software system. Now, when I say that, people are like, oh my God, this is like crazy shit, right? Like, <laughs> what, what is a bombastic statement? But let me explain. So the U.S. Constitution provides a number of benefits and rights to individuals including things like the ability to pursue a life of liberty, happiness, a ability for free speech, an ability to have private property rights, things like that. And so without going through kind of in, in great detail all of these different documents, if you think of Bitcoin, it basically provides two specific things that are really important. The first is private property rights. We now have a way for you to hold an asset in the digital world and know that it is your asset and you do not have to rely on a third party to give it to you when you want, right? Even the dollars in the bank, if you go and they're like, well, we're not issuing withdrawals today. It's not your money. It's their money. They owe it to you. But as we've seen, you can't get it out. The same thing is true of pretty much every digital asset you have, right? Outside of the analog world, your assets are sitting with someone else. And so this idea of having private property that you control, you own, or this idea of self-custody in Bitcoin is one key kind of American value that, that is implemented. The second thing is free speech. So there are a number of different cases that, that have gone all the way up to the Supreme Court that have proven that software is protected under the free speech. And so ultimately what you are doing is you are just moving bits of software back and forth that have monetary value assigned to them. But if I want to send you a string of words, right? And you ascribe economic value to it. If I am prevented from doing that, then is my free speech right being violated? It's a big question. I talked to a number of lawyers, had them on the podcast. They believe yes. They believe that stopping someone from someone, sending someone else software that doesn't violate other, you know, violence or, or whatever is protected under the free speech. And so, when you start to look at this, you're like, okay, those are like very direct applicable things in terms of Bitcoin structure and American rights or, or, or kind of uh, values. But then when you zoom out and you look and you say, okay, well, what does America stand for? America stands for opportunity. 
America stands for capitalism and democracy and all these different things. Bitcoin is a democratic system. If there needs to be a change to the code in terms of people want to create software updates, if there's some sort of major difference in what people want to do, it's up for vote. It's literally a democratic process. There's not one single owner. There's not a company. There's not an individual. It, it is the holders of Bitcoin end up all having a say across miners, node operators, et cetera. The second thing is Bitcoin is a free market. What I mean by free market is even the stock market in the United States, which we like to think of, oh, America embraces the free market. If a stock is too volatile, the circuit breakers come out, right? We have hours of operations. We have all these different things that, again, there's a good reason. Like we don't want humans up 24, 7, 365, <laughs> you know, trying to trade stocks. I get it. But that ultimately is not a true free market. Bitcoin does trade 24-7, 365. Anyone can use it at any time. There are no circuit breakers, just all these things. It's much more of that free market economics at play than, than maybe otherwise. And, and then the other thing that becomes really interesting is actually Bitcoin fulfills what is widely considered the two critical criteria for a central bank, including the U.S. central bank, which is for a central bank to be effective, it needs to, one, be independent, Right? We have presidents across both sides of the aisle that are tweeting at the central bank or calling the central bank presidents in to their office and kind of lecturing them and, and doing the whole thing. But it has to be independent of the political environment. And then the second thing is it has to be predictable. So if it, is, it has to be independent and predictable, if I was to put up any central bank in the fiat world next to Bitcoin, I think most people would be like, no, Bitcoin is definitely more independent and more predictable which ultimately fulfills kind of the, the responsibilities of the central bank in a better manner for the American people. And so you kind of look at this and you're like, okay, like this is like getting into the fringe kind of Bitcoin theory and, and all that. But if you go and you talk to the politician, you say, hey, if you really believe in the U.S. Constitution, what is the argument against it? And what you find is that like, there's not a lot that they kind of can stand on. And so naturally what happens is, as with most things in the world, it's not black and white. It's kind of the culmination of different things. So you have people who are holding it. The White House estimates about 15% of Americans have Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. You have this kind of appeal to the U.S. Constitution and individual rights that are kind of baked into the system. You have the alignment with democracy and capitalism, which until somebody finds a better system appears to be the best system that humans have created. And then lastly is you're competing with candidates that are likely to be sympathetic to this, right? If you're in a race and there's 10 people, somebody there is going to be pro-Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And so what you do is when you get to this like intersection point of all these things is I've just continued to said like, a Bitcoiner will be president. But the Bitcoiner probably isn't going to run on like, let's kill the US dollar, get rid of it. And like, we're going to install Bitcoin as the national currency. What's more likely to happen is like, Right now, a stock investor is president. Why? Because the guy who became president owns stocks. <laughs> Same thing with Bitcoin, right? It's like somebody's going to become president. Like, oh yeah, I own some Bitcoin. Okay. And, and so understanding that like these things have long timelines is important as well. And if tons of young people are into it, it just naturally will take hold in positions of power and influence, you know, 20 years from now. I mean, you've kind of seen it in the city that you're living in, Miami. It's been a strong pillar of the mayor's kind of stature in the community and kind of there's been a lot of people looking in. So I could see how that scales all the way up to the White House one day. Yeah, and in Texas, same way, right? Governor Abbott, I think, has been a, a pretty big, uh, or at least maybe he's been sympathetic, I think, to it and, and hasn't tried to kind of 
squash innovation and, and, and the economic work being done there. Texas is by far the mining capital of the world now when it comes to Bitcoin. All the oil and gas folks seem to have really embraced it. And, you know, that's just two states in the United States, right? There's plenty of other places that are doing great things. And so I, I think it's, it's inevitable, but like people want it to happen now. And, you know, as, as you find out in life, like eh, a little patience could serve us all well. In Texas, we're literally willing to not heat our houses for a couple months a year so that we can keep those mines going. I say that tongue in cheek. Everybody that's not from Texas seems to remember our storm two years ago better than the folks that live in Texas. But all right, we're going to I got you for 10 more minutes. Let's right. just kind of break down really quickly the big crypto news of FTX it's been about three or four weeks. I think he's speaking this week at New York Times, which is the craziest thing ever. Maybe we even start there. But just really quick, like what happened and is this the biggest event that's happened in crypto since it began? Or would you say there's been other things that were probably more negative to the industry than maybe this one thing? Or is this the thing? Yeah, I don't think it's the biggest. It's big, obviously. But, you know, back in the day, there was an exchange called Mt. Gox, which was like the biggest and a similar for different reasons, but a similar type of thing happened. And like if the industry was going to die, like that probably was the time. And, and so it's definitely big in the most general sense. And again, we're still getting more information, but like each piece of information doesn't get better. Right. So like we're kind of we're headed on a trajectory where like it looks worse and worse the more we learn, <laughs> which maybe that changes. But like I, I, I wouldn't bet on it is there was a, a gentleman, Sam McMafried. He started a hedge fund or trading firm. They appeared to be good at trading. They then started an exchange. It was pretty much presented to users as when you put your assets onto the exchange, they stay on the exchange. They don't go anywhere. They don't, aren't invested. They aren't lent. They aren't anything. And you can come and you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies just like, you know, any other crypto exchange that you've seen. Fast forward a couple of years, there's been all kinds of chaos and, and blow ups and, and all kinds of, you know, stress on the system. And then all of a sudden it looked like that exchange came under pressure. And then very quickly it went from like, hey, everything's fine to like, we're filing for bankruptcy literally in like a week. And what has come out since then is kind of a couple of things. One, the money that people were putting into the exchange that thought was just sitting there in the exchange was actually being lent out on the back end to the hedge fund that had been created. All kinds of accusations of maybe on the nicest way misleading to outright fraud. Courts will figure out kind of you know wh where they come out on all this stuff. Um, the second thing is that the exchange had a token that they had created called FTT. That token gave holders of it all kinds of advantages. So you could pay less fees on the exchange if you held the token, etc. And what eventually came out is that that token was used as collateral for a lot of borrowing. Obviously, if you create something and then you're using it as collateral and then it loses lots of value, that's bad. Happened here. And, and so that was kind of a key part of it. And then the third thing, and I think part of what probably like inflamed people's anger is everything was presented with like a very polished kind of, hey, we're trying to do good in the world. And now details are coming out that like, Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. There's a lot of money being spent, a lot of money being donated, just like a lot of things that on each individual detail, you kind of would be like, hmm, that's interesting, but like move on with your day. And then when you look at the totality of it all, you're like, I think that maybe in six months, someone's going to write a piece that like really unpacks this and we're all going to be like, wow, that's not what we thought it was. 
and so like the only other thing I would say is Bitcoin is like pretty unfazed. It, it went down a little bit, like maybe 15% or so like price-wise. But like people aren't leaving Bitcoin. If anything, people are like moving more towards Bitcoin, mainly because, you know, they're like, oh, this other stuff, you know, isn't what I thought it was. And it sucks. Like there's a lot of people, I, I'm always, you know, kind of intentional to make sure I mention like there's people who have lost a lot of money. Obviously, there's professional investors who they take risk for a living. So like, you know, hey, that sucks, but that's kind of your job. But there's a lot of retail investors who had money on the platform. They put that money there under one promise. And that promise appears to not have been true. So that's bad. And then there's like knock-on effects where every company that interfaced with that business is now under stress, at risk. They can't operate. Like there's all these problems. And so it's just, you know, it's very unfortunate. But I I think the positive is that the industry is not going to go anywhere. and, And Bitcoin will probably be stronger because of it. The negative is like, you know, what appear to be bad people doing bad things happens in every industry. Now's the time, you know, for, for us to kind of deal with this. And there's people who got hurt and we'll, we'll kind of see how it plays out. But I think to your last point about speaking at the New York Times <laughs> Summit, yeah. That's fucked I mean, up, man. <laughs> yeah. Look, here, here's my view, I think, of something like that. On one hand, I'm like, cool. Journalism is all about asking people hard questions and investigating and like doing all of this. If that was the prompt, like like if the New York Times or the Washington Post were like, you know, name your outlet. If they were all taking a super hard stance and the pieces they were writing were very critical and like it appeared that they had kind of some ground to stand on on like, we are going to ask tough questions. I think people would be like, oh, we're going to learn a lot of information here. I think why people are upset is because the coverage has actually been the opposite. It's almost been like kind of, you know, white glove, like, hey, look at this guy who like made a business mistake. And so the expectation now is that like, this is going to be not a hard interview. And then like, you also think like, Mark Zuckerberg's going, Eric Adams is going, like, there's like big name people. Is their attendance like an implicit support? Like, eh, that might be a stretch, but like, maybe not a stretch. So it's just like very weird. I don't know. I can't wait to hear the interview. <laughs> like, like that's going to that's gonna tell everyone and we're going to see kind of people's reactions to it. So, you know, trying to hold judgment until until we see that. Andrew Ross Sorkin is, you know, a very well-known, well-respected journalist who, you know, he, he's interviewed me before and he's definitely asked me questions. I was like, damn, Andrew, like, you know, did you have to ask that? <laughs> which is his job, right? Which, which he always reminds me. So like, I think let, let, let's wait to see kind of how the interview goes. And then I think we'll know whether it was a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I guess on that on that final note, you know, it was the largest. I, it was like, I guess, the largest exchange or the second largest. There was a lot of folks that that put money into it for the professional investors, I guess. And, and maybe this is just a simple answer. But I guess at that level, you don't really have to do, you shouldn't have to be doing due diligence on the exchange itself. Like you're putting money on a platform. If I go get money to JP Morgan, I'm not like, I mean, I guess it's just so well known that they're just a good bank that holds my money. But like in the crypto world, is there a level of due diligence that you could do to go like, hey, I just wonder how FTX is like holding this stuff. Like I would never question JP Morgan but I guess the question becomes in a more unregulated industry, is there a new question that will be asked of exchanges going forward? Maybe that's my answer is like, if I'm going to go put a billion dollars of my Bitcoin on your exchange, prove to me X, Y, and Z before I do that. 
So people are definitely going to ask the question now whether they get a good answer or not. Like, you know, is exchange by exchange. The one thing that I will say, which again, we're getting details. So like, we don't have great information on yet. But this idea that like, if you had asked for audited financials, if you had asked for some of this information, the thing you would have been given may not have actually been accurate because even the auditors or others potentially could have been misled. There's talk of like a backdoor. And again, we just don't know, right? There's a lot of rumors and reports or whatever. And so like, I don't even know, somebody was yelling at me on the internet, right? Because we we had a advertising deal. FTX was an advertiser. Their US kind of regulated exchange was an advertiser with a media business that we have. And somebody was yelling, how did you not know? And I'm like, okay, what question did you want me to ask? And the <laughs> response was like, you should have asked them if they were taking user funds and lending it to their hedge fund, which then was like levered up on, you know, blah, blah, whatever. And I was like, okay, by the way, if I had been smart enough to think of that question and ask them that, what do you want me to do if they had said, no, we don't do that? Yeah, <laughs> prove it. <laughs> And, and so I think that's a lot of like, I, I understand people are very upset. They they want to yell and scream. And and again, people, you know, are in a bad situation, all stuff. But like, if regulators get tricked, if auditors get tricked, I don't care who you are. It's going to be very hard for professional investors, retail investors, anyone to kind of figure this stuff out. And so, you know, it, it, there's just no good answers. There's no winners in these situations, unfortunately. But, you know, we've seen what happened in traditional finance. We're seeing one happen here. And, you know, my guess is that there will always be some bad person trying to do something bad for their gain. All right. One question to bring it home, unrelated to everything we've talked about, but I was going through your Twitter last night. You're the only person I know that's been to a live golf event. And you were like, hey, this was kick ass. I'm a huge golfer. In your perspective, I don't know if you are a big golfer. Sounds like you're more of a football player, but why was it really cool? Uh, you're the first person I've talked to that's actually been live to an event. Yeah. Man, this, like, this might be the most controversial thing we talk about today. <laughs> so for context, I have a friend who his dad is heavily involved. And so he was like, hey, we're, we're coming to Miami. Are you going to come? And I, I didn't actually didn't have plans to go. But my, my brother and I were like, yeah, let, let's just shoot. Let's go check it out. Everyone's talking about it. We went. And the best way I can describe it is it's F1 atmosphere for golf. Mm. So there's music playing, Navy SEALs jumped out of a, a helicopter or a plane beforehand. <laughs> like, I mean, like the whole thing, right? It's like very much a party. My wife was with me yeah, and she was like, this is fun. Yeah. And I think that really like, she didn't know anything about golf, right? Yeah. And neither, neither do I really, but it was a type of event that you go and you feel like you're almost at like a social event or like a party and it, there happens to be golf being played, mm. which to the like hardcore golfer is blasphemy. Yeah. Right. Like, what do you mean? They're playing music while they're teeing off. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at these animals. <laughs> but to the average fan, they're like, that it was a way more fun experience. And so, like, I- I'm always kind of careful to separate out like the fan experience from like you still got to build a business. You still got to be able to negotiate with the players. Like, you still got to like make it a sustainable thing. Obviously, they have Saudi as a backer who like they don't seem to have a, a lack of money that they could kind of continue to fund this. But I left thinking that it has a much higher probability of succeeding than maybe before I got there. Mainly just because I was like, the tickets are cheap. It's a fun time. And there's a larger addressable market for a golf event through this approach than like when I've gone to like a PGA event and like you feel like everyone is, you know, yeah. <laughs> 50 something years old and like golf clapping and, you know, don't don't show up in a t-shirt or you're going to get judged. Type. I hear you. Pomp, this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for your time today. 
Absolutely. I appreciate you letting me come on here, ramble and act like an idiot. Of course. Anytime. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.